Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, let's go ahead and start a few minutes after. Have a quick word of prayer, and we'll begin. Our Father, we are, again, grateful for today, for the day we can gather together to worship, thankful for the Sunday school hour that we have where we can instruct one another on uh, some of the more deeper things of your word and of your who and what you are, Father. We thank you for this time that we can look at the issue of canon. How do we know uh, the Bible we have is truly the Bible, Father, and study the men who, who helped that and how you guided them and show them the, the truth of what our scriptures are, Father, and why we can trust them as being truly from you. So we thank you for this and pray you'd help us to, to have more faith, more hope, and trust in you and in your word. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing in our study of canonicity. And... Um, we're getting a little bit deeper into it. Normally when I do a, a lesson like this, or a series of lessons, it's more just about the history, okay? What books were debated? What did they say about those books? How long did it take those books to, to either be accepted or rejected? And we're, we're doing some of that, but it's kind of in the background. We're really looking at uh, some more technical issues of canonicity, some of the debates that are going on kind of among the scholars and what, what they're saying and what, what are they uh, talking about and debating about. And we're gonna look at some of that today. Um, and we're going to look at basically for the next couple of weeks what we call uh, models of canonicity. This is show. There we go. And we're going to look at these different topics here. First of all, what do we mean by canon? How do we define that term in a way that's accurate and it's broad enough uh, to include a, a lot of information that we need to include in canon? We're going to be looking at that today. Then we're going to look at different models of canonicity. We'll probably introduce this today, just kind of put our feet in it, dip our, our toes in it for next week. And then we're going to look at four different tenets or four different principles. One, was there a theological model held by the early church that gives us reason to expect that a canon would have developed naturally? We had the early church ha had this deposit of, of doctrine, new doctrine, new revelation dropped on their laps. What are they going to do with that? Are they going to just retain it in their memory? Are they going to keep oral traditions? Or is there something in their, their DNA that comes from Judaism and even around the, the uh, Greco-Roman culture that's going to drive them to instinctively put that into writing? Is that something that the church actually did? Was that there in their minds, in their mindset? Uh, basically intrinsically there. And then uh, were early Christians adverse to written documents? Did they have something against documents, codifying this doctrine? Would they have been against that or would they have been for that idea? Um, and were the New Testament writers ignorant and oblivious of their own authority when Paul wrote Romans? Was he writing as authoritative? Were they simply books that were giving helpful advice to the church? Or were they actually authoritative books that were coming from the mouth of God uh, through the words, through the writings of the apostles? That's a very important question. And uh, were the New Testament books not regarded as scriptures? Uh, um, um, oh, yeah. Were the New Testament books not regarded as scripture until the end of the second century? We'll look at this, uh, get into this today, the difference between scripture and canon. Uh, We'll see again in a few minutes here. Uh, people like the Roman Catholic Church think that there was really no scripture until there was a, a clearly defined canon, that the church had no scripture. Um, but during that time, before this, the canon was codified or actually uh, solidified, 
were the books of the Bible considered to be scripture? Or were they just kind of there floating around with no meaning until the church said, ah, these are canon, these are the scriptures, now we can go forth and use these books in defending the faith? Or were they declared scripture before that? So we'll look at that question uh, today. Any questions or comments before we get into the, uh, the first point there? Okay, so let's look at the, what do we mean by canon? What is the canon? Now, there are a number of ways that we can define it. Um, Um, first of all, uh, books that are part of a final closed list. That's the canon. We have a Bible here. Uh, nobody's going to add to or take away these books. That is our definition of what a, a canon is. Or can we define canon as books that were widely used by the early church? So there's a collection of books that the early church used uh, that they thought were authoritative. Uh, are those, is that what we define as a canon? Or are they books that, that function as scripture? They may not have been part of a, a list. The church may not have given their, their seal of approval on these books as being canon, as being inspired, but they still use them as scripture in, in debates and preaching and teaching and defending the, the faith from heretics. So uh, is it one of these or is it, in a sense, all of these in some way? We're gonna see that it all, we have to have a definition that includes all of these ideas because the canon is a, a closed list. We don't want to add to it, we don't want to take away from it. Uh, the books that were widely used by the early church did function as scripture as we're going to see. So whatever definition we have, it needs to be broad enough uh, to include these three ideas. They have to be a closed final list, they have to be functioned as scripture, and they have to be used by the, the early church. Now, there's basically three definitions that we're going to look at when we define the canon. And all of these have some benefit, and as we'll see, all of these are, are needed in order to understand what the canon actually is, to have a useful meaning of the canon. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so here's sort of the problem that, that we have. Um, we have the, the early books, let, let, and again, it's just a rough estimate of when the books were written. First book, what was uh, 1 Thessalonians, 45 to 52 AD. Then we had Galatians, Corinthians, all written within about 10 years of one another. Okay, these books were written and sent out by the apostle uh, to the various churches. Uh, closing up the canon, we have Revelation, 100 AD, Gospel of John between 90 and 110 AD. And then we don't have an actual, the first letter that we have uh, listing the books as canon is not until 367 AD. We have what's called a festive letter of, uh, this was written by Athanasius. So the question is, okay, let's say that is where the canon was defined. The, the canon started at 367 AD. Now it's not, but let's just say it was. What happens to all this other time here? What about this time here? What, did the church have a canon? Did the church have authoritative scripture that they could use to defend the faith, uh, to build up the body? Or did they just kind of wander around waiting for somebody to declare the canon to be final so that they could finally get into this act of defending and teaching the church with their Bible? So that's, that's the question we're trying to ask. What happens in this period? Uh, let's say we can set a date, we're going to see that we really can't, for a final canon. What happened during that time when that 
canon was not, wasn't necessarily final. And to do this, we come up with, with basically three definitions of canon that I think are helpful in understanding the process of the canon. Anybody have any questions before we move on? Yeah, I, I don't want to be up here talking. Any questions or comments? Okay, everybody see what I'm talking about? The question, what happens? Does canon start here like the Roman Catholics say? Or is there something else we can look at or define so that we can see that we did have a canon before this period, before it was a final authoritative declaration by the church? Are you saying collectively from the Old and New Testament? Or are you specifically We're talking just about the New Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament canon... We're done with that. Right. Yeah, we have the Palestinian canon, Jewish canon. Uh, again, there's some debate once the Septuagint came in uh, for, as the Old Testament with the uh, Apocrypha being a part of it. But right now, the Old Testament canon is, is sealed. It, it's done. <laughs> now, the first is the what's called the exclusive definition of, of the canon. This means that there was no canon or scripture until a final closed list of books appeared. Until the, first, the church somehow, maybe a, a magistrate, a pope, a group of bishops said, this is the scripture, this is the Bible, this is the New Testament, and now we finally have a canon. That, that's what's cool. called the exclusive definition of the canon. And this is the definition that basically the Catholics use. They think that there was no canon. No scripture, really, until the church declared that this is the actual canon itself. And they actually see themselves as giving the church the scriptures when that occurred. Okay, now uh, some of the benefits of this. Uh, first of all, it captures what we call uh, the canon's fluid edges before the 4th century. What I mean by that is that when we're talking about debating about what is part of the canon, we're only talking about very, very few books. Imagine a puzzle of 27 pieces, and you've got 21 or 22 pieces already in set, but you've got maybe seven or eight pieces that you're not really sure where they're going to go. That's what we mean by the, uh, the fluid edges, these certain books that we're just not quite sure. The church is still debating where the other 21 or 22, 23 books, it's pretty much set as that these are the actual scriptures, these are the actual canon. And we can see this by looking at some of the, um, the different early lists of the biblical canons that we have. Uh, so we have the, the canon or the fragment um, or a letter. These come in either fragments, uh, books, or actually the codex is just a Bible, an old Bible. Uh, we have a letter and then other codexes. So the first one is what's called the Mortorian Fragment. It is about 170 A.D. We have the Codex Vaticanus, that's 325 A.D., uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, we'll see a lot more about this when we look at uh, textual criticism. That was, uh, the date of that is about 330 to 360. Uh, Athanasius' Easter letter, letter that Athanasius wrote, uh, 367 AD. And this is where most people will put the finalization of the canon. Uh, uh, Athanasius' letter contains every book of the Bible and no extra books, no Shepherd of Hermes, no Epistle of Barnabas. It, it's strictly the New Testament books and nothing else added, where these other books... Uh, I think the Codex Vaticanus has all of them, but it has a couple extra books added to it. Then we have the Codex Alexandrius, 440 to 440 AD, and then the Codex Ephraim Rescriptus. It's an interesting book. We'll see more of this, but what a Rescriptus is, it's a manuscript that was discovered, I think it was in the um, 12th or 13th century manuscript, very early manuscript. And they were reading it and looking at it and noticed that there was something in the background. 
that it wasn't quite right. So they examined it and they found out that what somebody had did was a scribe had taken a 450, 80, almost a thousand year old manuscript, erased it and wrote a new manuscript over it. And so what they did, that's why it's called rescriptus, rewriting, <laughs> overwrote the old manuscript. So they had with uh, certain chemicals and technologies, they were able to get rid of that, the earlier manuscript and see what was behind it, what was actually written originally. So that's the uh, Codus Ephraimi Rescriptus. So these are basically the books that we go by or the lists we go by when we determine what books were in or out of the canon. Now, when we look at these books, it's amazing how close they are. If you look at the Mortorian fragment, 170 AD, very, very early. Uh, it's only missing Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. Uh, it has added to it the Apocalypse of Peter and the Books of Wisdom. So this is, this is pretty close to our canon. And again, it goes all the way back to 170 AD. And there's some question about some of the books. Uh, it's a very uh, distorted fragment. So if you look at this, read it, it'll say it may have Hebrews and Mark. But it probably does have them. It's just the part of that manuscript that lists those is a little bit big marks in it or tears in it. They can't read it. So uh, if you assume that it really does have those uh, where it's clearly missing something in its list, it's Hebrew, James, 1st, 2nd Peter. And again, it adds the Apocalypse of Peter and the Books of Wisdom. If you look at the um, other books, these, all, these books all have the exact same uh, Bibles. These all have all 27 books of the New Testament, all of them do. The only difference is that they have these other books added to them. Uh, they have the First Saint Clement, the Codex Alexandrius, uh, Shepherd of Hermes, Epistle of Barnabas is added to the uh, Sinaiticus, and then the Apocalypse of Peter and Book of Wisdom is added to the Mortorian fragment. Now what this tells us is that the books that were debated were not a whole lot of books. We have pretty much 26, 25, 24 books that everybody believed were canon. No doubt, no debate whatsoever. Then a couple other books around the edges where they said, yeah, these may or may not be. And, uh, and a couple books added, again, the Clement, First St. Clement is only in one manuscript. Uh, Shepherd of Hermes, Epistle Barnabas, only in one. So these books weren't appearing everywhere. They're in very few uh, codexes or lists or fragments. So again, when he talks about the, the fluid edges of the canon, that's what he's talking about. Very, very few books. At this point, the canon was pretty much defined except for a, a handful. And what, what this exclusive definition does, it acknowledges that. It says, yeah, you know, we did have a debate, but it was a small debate around a small number of books, but it was still a debate going all the way into the third and fourth century. Also, this reminds us, and this is important too, of the importance of the church's central role in the formation of the canon. The church was important in coming up with the canon and, and, and certifying what the canon actually was. So there's two good things to this. One, it's honest and says, yeah, we did debate. We debated for a while. Small number of books, but there was a debate going on. And the church was important in defining what that canon was, what that final list was. So uh, helpful, but it's got some problems. One of them is that it's hard to believe that the sharp scripture canon distinction was held by the early church. The question is, was the church sitting around waiting for a canon before they could do anything? We got a, a little stick here. We want a, a sword in its place. When the church gives us a sword, then we'll go out and fight. 
Or did they have scripture that they thought was canon and went out and used it as if it was an actual canon, as if it was actual scripture? So it's hard to believe that the church just sat around and waited. And we know they didn't. Um, so now the idea of functional canon, make sure I'm done with this here. I think I have some more points here. Yeah, let's take a look at what, what the church did before it had the, um, well, let me, because I'm getting ahead of myself. I've got a new system of notes that I'm using, so I get kind of lost in my notes right now. Okay, so. Yeah, go back to this idea of the, uh, the church kind of waiting for the canon to close. We, we looked a little bit at the church history, and right out of the gate, the church had to fight heresies. Remember what two of those heresies were? They, they centered around scripture. One was uh, Montanism, and the other one was Gnosticism. So they had these heresies right out of the gate that were challenging the scriptures. And how did the church fight those? Was it sitting around waiting for a scripture, waiting for a canon, waiting for the church to approve a group of documents that we can use? Or did they take the scriptures that they had, that they saw as authoritative, and go and fight? And they went and fought. They took the sword that they had, that God had given them at that time, and fought and actually won. Or take the Arian controversy, uh, the, the battle about the deity of Christ. Uh, Arius was born in uh, five... Uh, 256 A.D. and died around 336 or 37 A.D. And uh, the battle waged a little bit after that. But again, it, this battle started around 300 A.D., maybe 290 A.D., long before we had a finalized canon. Yet was the church able to withstand Arianism and fight it and defeat it without the church declaring these 27 books are the scriptures? What did the church do? Well, they, they went out and, and fought. And, and if you read that time period, they seem to have no disadvantage whatsoever. Uh, there's no sense of, boy, we really need some scriptures. We really need the church to define what the Bible is so that we can fight this. No, they didn't retreat into the shelters of their church and nervously wait for the Catholic church to bring them this golden sheath sword so that they could come out and fight. No, they, they took what they had and they fought, and they fought ferociously, and they won. So this idea that the church was waiting for the Catholic Church or some church body to approve the scriptures, uh, it just didn't happen. It didn't happen. And secondly, one of the problems with this as well is that if we look for a formal uh, official act of the early church when the, we, okay, after this time period, after this one official act, we now have a canon. Uh, it just didn't occur. The church never just said, okay, here is the canon, this is it, take it or leave it, and then the church move on and have no more debate about that whatsoever. Church is always debated to some degree about what the canon is. Uh, again, we have letters going all the way into the 4th and 5th century. Uh, the Codus Alexandrius, the one we saw that rescriptus. Uh, 400 to 450 A.D., uh, some of them are missing books. The Codus, the Rescriptus is probably missing 2 Thessalonians and 2 John. Uh, they've got pseudo-epigraphical books. The Alexandrius has 1st and 2nd Clement. So even as far as the 4th century, usually well after we think we have a canon, we still have Bibles 
that people were using that have extra books and that have books excluded. So there's no single point that we can go to in church history and say, okay, here we go. This is where the canon was finalized and everybody sort of fell in line. Remember with um, uh, Jerome when he wrote the Vulgate? Did that settle the canon issue? No. People said, hey, you need to bring these... uh, apocryphal books that are in the Septuagint into the Bible itself. You need to make them part of the Bible. And Jerome said, no, we're not going to do that. And that debate raged all the way through the Middle Ages. So there's never been one single time where we can point to and say, yes, this is the defining moment. After Before here, we had no canon. After this date, we definitely had a canon. It was more a gradual process where the church sort of looks up and says, oh, yeah, we've got a canon. So that idea of the church defining that uh, in a hard, fast way, simply doesn't, doesn't exist in church history. Uh, the East and West churches debated, again, all the way through the Middle Ages about what the scriptures were. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a canon, but to find a clear date of demarcation where we go from no canon to canon, it just can't be found. Uh, so again, that sort of goes against this definition, this exclusive definition of a canon. And again, inherent in this definition, another problem is that Uh, The fourth century represents a profound change in the development of the New Testament. So if you think, okay, we had no canon at this point, but then after this time we had a canon, you'd expect there to be a major change, and there's not. It happens without hardly a whisper. You know, the church doesn't come out one day and start celebrating. Yes, we finally have a canon. The church has given us the canon, finally. There's none of that in the church. No evidence of that happening. It just went from third to the fourth to the fifth century using the scriptures that they had to defend the faith, to build up the church, and to encourage the brethren. So we don't see that historically. Again, there's very little difference between a canon in the fourth century and fifth century or for the 12th century at that matter. Uh, one man says this, uh, one of the books I'm using for this is a guy named uh, Dr. Kruger uh, called The Question of Canon. He says this, before the fourth century, the church did not have a boundless living mass of heterogeneous texts with no constraint on what was considered scripture. So the idea uh, that churches often give us is that it was just this mass of confusion. All these books out there that were being added to the scripture taken away. We couldn't really nail down anything until the 4th or 5th century came. And that's just not true. Like I said, we've had 26, maybe 25 of the books nailed down. It was just a question of a few other books, whether they should be there or whether they shouldn't be there. So historically, we don't see this radical change uh, going from having a canon to not having a canon or vice versa. Again, restricting the idea of canon until it was officially recognized by the church obscures the continuity that existed in earlier times. Uh, Did the canon come into existence ex nihilo, uh, the result of a church council, or was it a growing list of documents considered as scriptures until the final closing of the canon? What we'll see that it was a a growing body of scripture that was finalized at some time in the 4th or 5th century. Now, so that's the... um, the uh, external definition of canon. Uh, Is it adequate? No. Does it help? It helps in a few ways, but we need more if we're going to carefully and thoroughly define a canon. And the second definition is what we call the the functional 
definition, and it's right here. Uh, the idea of a functional canon is a group of books that functions as a religious norm regardless of whether they are part of an open or closed canon. Uh, we can use the word canon to be employed as soon as the book is regarded scripture by the Christian community. So Paul writes a letter uh, to the Romans. Uh, the church gets that letter. They say, hey, you know, th there's a divine authority here. Uh, there's something here about this book that we need to pay attention to. And the church starts using that as scripture. That's the functional definition of a canon. So the church actually using these books. Um, so it's it got some strengths because it really reflects more of the history of the church. This seems to be how the church accepted the scripture. We got a book by Paul. Uh, he's an apostle. He speaks with authority. Let's use this as scripture, as our canon, as more and more of these books uh, came to the churches, were spread through the churches, were recognized by the churches. That became their canon. That was their functional canon. Again, and this explains how the church could do battle against heretics in the second all the way through the four centuries before they had an official canon declared by the church. And another benefit of this is it does, uh, Roman Catholics don't like this view because it really uh, deflates uh, the role of the church in the, dec in the creation of the canon. It gives them a, a secondary place, the, the, this magisterial declaration that we have a canon. Uh, they already had the canon, it was just the church recognizing it, not creating the canon or, or defining the canon. Um, Weakness. There's some weaknesses, too, to this view. Uh, it does not account for books that were regarded as scripture by some early Christian communities that never made it into the closed canon. So there are other books. Uh, we, we saw the Epistle of Barnabas that many in the church believe was part of the canon. And they use that to defend the faith. Okay? It doesn't answer uh, how do those books fit into the canon because they were basically thrown aside. So they become canon, become scripture, and not scripture? How do we... How do we uh, define that within this framework of a functional canon? We really can't. Um, how, again, how can it be canonical and then suddenly not be canonical? Um, and also this leads to, this. the big problem I have, it leads to the view that the church makes a book the canon that the church decides this is scripture, this is canon, um, and this results in a naturalization of the canon, meaning it's dependent upon uh, human or human or arbitrary process. Uh, people who hold strictly to the function of view, they'll say things like uh, the following, well, uh, we wouldn't have had a canon unless certain situations came about. For example, they'll often say, well, because of the uh, Marcion controversy, where Marcion started saying certain books of the Bible shouldn't be included, uh, uh, Paul's epistles shouldn't be part of the canon. Well, the church responded to that by creating a canon. There are certain uh, political, social, historical, uh, doctrinal forces that made them define the canon. Um, the canon was created as a social phenomena. It follows, uh, it allows a community to uh, keep its unique identity. Uh, the idea is that the church began to fragment, uh, began to divide up. People came in and started trying to corrupt it, so they needed a standard, a canon, to protect the church. So they developed the canon that way. That's how the scripture became functional. These books became functional as scripture. So uh, there are problems where it allows the the formation of the canon to be a, a strictly historical social phenomenon. And we know we're going to see later it is not. Um, so before we go to the, the final definition, let me ask this question. Um, 
when did the book of Romans become canon? We've seen this external, we've seen this functional. When do you think it really became canon? Paul starts to write the book. So he puts his pen down, starts the first word, I, Paul. He gets to the, the last words, uh, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ alone be the glory, amen, period. Then he sends it out to the churches. The churches read it, they see it, they, they recognize a divine authority in that book. And then they use it in defense of the faith. Uh, time goes on, more churches adopt that book uh, to be a part of their arsenal. Uh, it goes out universally in a church using that as a scripture. Then finally the church comes along sometime in the 4th or 5th century AD and says, yes, this book is part of the canon. When in that process, from the pen hitting the page of that paper to the church saying it is the scripture, when did it really become canon? As soon as it was written. Exactly. As soon as he wrote that word, amen, it was done. It was canon. Now, why? Because God is the one who determines the canon, not the church. And that leads us to our, our third definition of canon, and that is the ontological definition. This views the canon basically from a divine perspective uh, and not a social or natural or ecclesiological perspective. Books don't become canon when they're used, functional, or when they're recognized, exclusive, by the church. Rather, they're canon immediately after they were written. The church may not know it, but God knows it, and God has assigned that book to be a part of the canon and given everything needed to make that book a part of the canon. Uh, Warfield says this. And this was written about 150 years ago. The canon of the New Testament was completed when the last authoritative book was given to any church by the apostles. And that was when John wrote the Apocalypse about 89 AD. Now we push that date back a little bit probably now. But his point here is that when the last book of the New Testament was written, that is when the canon was complete. Now, it's going to take the church time to recognize that, but that doesn't mean there is no canon. It's there. It's just going to take time for the church to recognize. That's why, against our Roman Catholic friends, we don't say, you made the canon. You recognized the canon that was already there, but you did not define that canon. God did. You just simply agreed with God. Yes, this is the actual canon. Any questions or comments about that? So these three definitions also imply one another in the following way. And a lot of times when we come up with definitions about something complex, we just can't come up with one definition. Sometimes we have to more or less uh, define parameters in our definitions to sort of bound it in a certain area. And that's kind of what we're doing here. We're not saying, okay, this is what canon is. Canon is all three of these things. But all of them are necessary to have a proper understanding of what canon is. So we can see these three definitions, they, they imply one another in the following way. God gives a canonical book to the church. That is the ontological definition. That book becomes a canon when it is written. Uh, then we should expect the church to recognize it and use it as an authoritative norm. That is the functional definition of a church. So if a book is ontologically defined as scripture, it's going to have a functional use in the church as an authoritative norm. It's going to be used by the church as God intended it to be. 
and the canonical book, book is a book used as an authoritative norm, we might naturally expect that the church would eventually reach a consensus on the boundaries defining what books are to be and not to be canonical. That is the exclusive def definition of canonicity. So we see how all three of these definitions work to give us a, a complete, full definition of canonicity. God writes a book, uses a man to write a book, that book becomes canon. Now the next step is a church has to recognize it and use it as canon, and they do, that's the functional. Then ultimately the church will take these books, put them together and say, this is what we recognize, this is what we see, understand as the canon that God has gave us. So any questions or comments about that? Seem pretty clear or have I utterly confused you? Okay. So good way to look at the... Uh, definition of what canon it avoids a lot of con a lot of confusion uh, a lot of difficulty a lot of error and, and such but i think it's very very helpful uh to have let's see we have 10 minutes all right now i figured we'd be done a little bit early here so um i think i have a slide for this we're gonna what we'll do is we'll introduce the idea of um the models of canonicity now to in introduce this excuse me At the end of the 18th century, there was a movement called the, uh, it was called historical biblical criticism. Uh, it's shortened off into biblical criticism. But uh, what they sought to do, these men, these uh, doctors and scientists and, and uh, historians, what was to take the Bible and apply a, a, a natural science uh, reason-based criticism of the Bible to remove all of the religious dogma. Uh, they basically said, we believe in uh, a form of naturalism. Uh, we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe in God coming to the earth and living as a man. Uh, so what we need to do is, is look at the Bible through these critical eyes and extract from it the truth, the scientific truth that we know is there, buried under th this layer of dogma. It was sort of like uh, peeling an onion where they, you know, you, you want to get to the sweet part of the onion, you, you peel the outside of it, and eventually you come into the, the sweet part of the onion. Uh, the illustration they used was we have a, a kernel of truth, and that kernel has chaff, it has waste on it. We need to extract that to get to the pure, uh, gold, and nutritious kernel of the truth. So they applied the, these principles. Uh, if you ever read the uh, things like form criticism or rhetorical criticism, uh, anybody ever hear of the... Um, the J documentary hypothesis. How many people have heard of that? Documentary hypothesis. What they did was they, they took the Old Testament, or the, the books of Moses, actually, and divided up into four areas. It, it was J, E, P, D. This was Jehovah, this was Elohim, this was priestly, and this was Deuteronomy. And each of these were authors that had their own influence in shaping the, uh, the way the Pentateuch was written. So they would go in and they would say, okay, this part here, because of these characteristics, that was written by the Jehovahist. Then this part over here, because it has these characteristics, it uses the word Elohim as God, that is written by the um, Elohist. Uh, the priestly stuff, all the stuff in um, uh, Leviticus, those are written by priests or a priest. And then Deuteronomy, uh, the second the entering into the land, all that was written by the Deuteronomist. 
And so they, they divided it up into all these different authors and how they tried to figure out how it came together as one unit. And it just, as time progressed, it got more and more ridiculous. They'll take one verse and divide that verse up. Okay, Jehovah's wrote these three words, the, the priest wrote these four words, and then the Deuteronomist inserted these words between those three words. It just got ridiculous. It ended up where there was three or four Elohist articles, or authors. There was three or four priestly authors. It just became this big mass of confusion. And that was the method they applied to try to understand what, what the core of the Bible says, how it came to be, and how they could, they could extract truth from it uh, and separate that from the dogma that was there. And uh, one man described it this way. When it was all, this went on for 100 years or so. When it was all over, uh, one man looked back at all this, all this nonsense, and he said this. And I'm not exactly, I couldn't find an exact quote, but I remember hearing it 25 years ago, and it just kind of stuck with me. So after this almost a century of study, after uh, the greatest minds in the world uh, looking at this, taking up this task, after thousands of books, millions of words spilled out in books and articles, uh, thousands of lectures, uh, investigations, uh, he summarized it this way. He said, this man, by their studies, they're, they're gazing into the pool at the bottom of a dark well, looking for Jesus. And what they saw was just a reflection of their own face. That's all they saw. They were just basically describing their own presuppositions, their own scientific ideas, and imposing them upon the Bible. And when we look at the models of canonicity, we'll see two models. That's pretty much what's happening today with this idea of how did the canon or why did the canon come about. We have a group of people uh, that have certain presuppositions about the early church that they're just like us. So let's take a progressives as an example. The early church, they believe, uh, was all equal. All men and women were equal. They had women apostles, women, I actually have a friend on Facebook, claims that there were women apostles, uh, women pastors. Uh, it was this complete uh, egalitarian society. Um, there was sexual freedom that God respected, the church respected, committed homosexual relationships. Um, uh, effeminate men, trans people were allowed. And if you think uh, the trans stuff is new to today, uh, it was in the early church as well. I think Russ Leonard, a number of years ago, asked me to collect a bunch of quotes by the early church fathers, as early as I could go, uh, speaking about uh, effeminates or trans uh, activity in the Bible, in the them speaking of it and reading it in, from the Bible, or them arguing against it, actually. And uh, I found probably 20 or 30 quotes by these early church fathers, I mean, people before Augustine, that it, it sounds like they're describing uh, this guy, Dylan Mulvaney, in, in their description of, of these men and acting like women and dressing like women and putting makeup on and, and prancing around in, in dresses like men. So this stuff existed. Uh, in the early church. It's very clear that these they fought against this type of activity. Um, they may not have had the surgery or the uh, hormones to affect it like we do, but it was still there with the makeup and the dress and action and so forth. So uh, those people were accepted by the church. They, they were part of the church and loved as uh, anybody else. There was no rich. Uh, they were all communal in their living. They all shared their wealth. It was this perfect uh, little commune where everybody was accepted and on and on and on and on. Uh, but then they look at the church today, and they don't see the church like that. So something had to happen. Well, what they say is that there are a, uh, a number of explanations. One of them is that um, what happened was a bunch of powerful men came along, a patriarchy, and uh, they wanted to force their will upon this free-loving, uh, spiritually-driven church. 
and they wanted to put their will upon it and shape it in a way that they thought they needed to shape it. They wanted to control their power. So what did they do? How did they rein the church in? Well, they created a canon. They created a bunch of authoritative books that they wrote that they then imposed upon a church to conform it to their system of power and their system of authority. And they pretty much succeeded. And when we look at the, the different models of canonicity, that, that's what's happening in some of these models. Is it simply the church or people saying, well, the church can't be like this. It's, it's wrong. The way the church is, is not correct. So how are we going to fix it? Well, we'll simply take this Bible and say that it, it didn't exist. It was a, a foreign imposition upon the church that a patriarchy or some social situation arose where uh, men needed to reign the church and needed to control the church. So they did it by giving it a canon. And that leads to, to two different models of canonicity. You know, we'll get more into these next week and argue for one in particular. The first one is what we call the intrinsic model. And it claims that the idea of canon was basically forced upon the church by ecclesiastical authorities. Uh, early Christians had no intrinsic need for a canon, but it was an ecclesiastical product meant uh, to meet ecclesi an ecclesiastical need. It denies the very existence of a canon. The canon was not a natural development within the early church, but it was imposed upon a church by a group of church leaders. It has the idea that the canon was an artificial development and not in line with the original purpose of the church. Had the church been allowed to go on like it was without this imposition of, of these men, then would still have no canon and still be a you know, homosexual accepting, trans-loving, uh, free communal group of people uh, with no structures at all. Uh, some people say due to worldliness, due to secularization uh, that developed within a church, uh, it, they developed the canon to make it secular, uh, on and on. There's a lot of reasons why they do it. So again, holds the, the, now the, the second model, the intrinsic, which is the one that we believe holds that the formation of the canon was an organic, innate movement that came from within the church itself. Uh, it was something not imposed upon her in an attempt to conform her to outside principles or powers, but it was something that a dynamic result of the early church's faith. And what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is, is defend that view to show that the church, given this new revelation, would have naturally, instinctively wanted to put that information in writing and give it to, to the church as a canon, as scriptures to defend their faith. And, and it's, there's, to me, it's wonderful. There's so many Christian truths that we're going to study. This is when we kind of get away from the technical stuff and dig into the, the, the nature of the church, the Old Testament, the view of covenants, uh, the view of, of how revelation progresses, and all this uh, information the church inherited and how they would have naturally wanted to add to the scripture, create canon, uh, to reflect this new revelation that God had given them. So we'll, we'll spend about two or three weeks looking at that next week and yeah, a couple more weeks after that, probably uh, the rest of January. Any questions or comments? Okay, a little bit technical. I, I, I'm, like I said, I've taught candidacy many times, and I've never got this deep into it. I've got a, a pretty big crowd. Usually when I do this, uh, I teach it in... By the time I'm three weeks into it, I've got five or six people. But uh, if, you th if you think I'm getting too deep or, or too academic, before you go to dance class, just talk to me. Let me know. Okay, I, I, can, I can try to uh, trim it down. But the response I'm getting is incredible. That, that's why I am keep going like this, because people are coming up and saying, well, I never heard that before. Thanks for doing that. So I'll keep that up unless people come up and start telling me, hey, you know, I'm getting ready to 
fly the coop, tone it down a little bit, and I'll understand. I certainly will understand. Okay, well, thanks for your attention. Any questions or comments, feel free to come up. We have a few extra minutes, but thanks for your attention. I appreciate it.